Right, so on this episode, we are joined by a special friend, Andre Feldman, a Canadian Swiss. You were where were you? Were you born in Canada or were you born here? No, I was born in, in Switzerland. My parents uh, moved to Canada when I was actually. I was just checking out the stuff because I was filling out uh, uh, Jack's. I, I just had a son, Jack's uh, birth certificate. You have to get his Canadian citizenship, so I have to look at all my documents. And so we moved to Canada in 1990, and I was born in 1985. So I was like four and a half years old, um, and then I was a naturalized naturalized citizen. Nice. So we met uh, the summer of what was that? Now that must have been what was it? Twenty seventeen? Could it be? No, man, it's got to be further back than that. Twenty six? Yeah, it must be. It's got like twenty. I would I would say like twenty fifteen. Twenty fifteen. Because it, it was after the Moxie launch was in twenty thirteen, so it was after that. So 2014, 2015, something like that. Right. And then, so we met because one of our skiers, we won't mention her name, but she was working with you doing some diagnostic work because you had come up, you were using different endurance tests and different um, sort of, you know, technological interventions with some of the pro athletes. So we got invited to meet. We met randomly. And you even chucked me on the bike and made me do some of the testing too, from what I remember. Yeah, and I think um, that the, the, the athlete was injured, like couldn't, or something was there, and you you ended up doing a bunch of testing, you know. That's right. And then we ended up bought, forming a good friendship um, and also a professional relationship. And then we started utilizing the different things that you were involved with, such as Spiro Tiger, um, which is a respiratory training training device. The Moxie monitor, which was a near-infrared um, measurement device that goes on a local muscle that measures saturation of muscle oxygen and also blood flow, which we then ended up training the Zurich Lions with, as well as doing different tests that were quite pioneering here in Swiss. But I always mention your name with Moxie. Can we go straight into what is Moxie? What does it do? Why did we end up using it for the testing? And what was the unique data that it showed? Yeah, that's a lot. Um, oh, yeah, I just had to say, I think when we first met, you didn't have a beard. Am I allowed to say that on the show live? I think I had a blonde, <laughs> I think I had a blonde mohawk, didn't I? Was that yeah, back then? Oh, was that already, I, I, I'm not sure. If, yeah, anyways, but just the ways back. Uh, so, okay, so Moxie, yeah. So I, uh, I'm, I'm a co-developer of the Moxie. The Moxie is a near-infrared spectroscopy device, like you said and it measures muscle oxygen saturation. And uh, it, I, I then, I used it for diagnostics. So uh, generally when, we, when I talk about the diagnostics, we're always talking about endurance-based diagnostics. And you compare it to things like blood lactate testing or ergospirometry, like VO2 um, gas exchange testing, which, which I also did. So I did lots and lots of lactate testing. Uh, for a pretty long time, like starting really young. I think I started doing my first lactate test when I was like 14 because my, my dad did it as well. Didn't you do lactate testing when you climbed Kilimanjaro too? You crazy dude. Yeah, I did that? a bunch of sampling like on, on myself. Right. Yeah. So that's where you get like this, this like lactate paradox where um, you, you get high altitudes and your oxygen saturation, like arterial saturation drops because of the altitude and the drop of partial pressure. Um, and so you have less oxygen available, but you, you, uh, you don't build lactate spontaneously. 
um, into the whole aerobic anaerobic thing. But let's let's not. We can talk about that after we got, we got some time. But so anyway, so we the, the Moxie monitor is this this uh, muscle oxygen saturation measurement device, and simply said, it's it, it's this little device. It's about this big, if the proportions eight. And you put it onto a muscle and it measures the change of your muscle, uh, of your muscle oxygen values. And it does this in real time. And these are, these values are highly dynamic and they relate to how you supply oxygen to the muscle and how your muscle is using oxygen to create energy. And so it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a pretty cool device because you get this like real time local feedback of what's happening bioenergetically in the muscle. And uh, you can then perform diagnostics on this, very similar if you want to lactate testing or gas exchange testing. You can use like ramp test protocols and you look at, well, what's happening with my, uh, uh, with my muscle oxygen. And then what, what we then end up doing is the, because of this real-time feedback that happens very, very, very quickly is we started then applying it to, um, let's say non-endurance-based sports, so kind of more tempo sports, so like like ice hockey, which we then did in Canada. If you do it in Canada, you got to do things with hockey, um, and so you get these really cool images that you don't get with blood lactate because blood lactate is always um, is it's a postponed measurement because you measure it in the blood, lactate is produced in the muscle, so you have this big time delay. Um, and and so you you get this like kind of real-time feedback. You really see how oxygen's used and you take a break and you see it recover again. And you, uh, which is an interesting analysis then on, on how to do endurance training steady state, but also how to do uh, kind of interval type, type training, which is what we did with the, with the lines. Right. And, and due to sort of the way that the muscle utilizes its oxygen, you sort of separated guys results, right? So you had got some guys that had a utilization problem, and then some guys that had more of a supply problem. Is that correct? Yeah. So generally, generally speaking here, if, if we take it back, is that you have this famous performance parameter, VO2, so oxygen consumption in, 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 in the system. So you have systemic VO2. And uh, generally, that's then measured um, through gas exchange at the mouse with this mask. And this is often kind of the gold standard measurement for uh, what would classically be called aerobic performance. Um, basically how much oxygen you consume and it, it correlates highly to, to performance. So uh, you'd get really high values in these like crazy endurance athletes with the highest ones generally being some crazy Norwegian cross country skiers with like 90 VO2 max. Um, and so this high correlation between performance and VO2 max. Um, now, the, the, the issue with, uh, I'm losing track of myself here a little bit. Um, the issue with VO2 max in relation to performance sports. Uh, yeah, no, but the question you asked before I went off, oh yeah, with, with, with lactate, um, VO2 max, lactate. Um, and supply and utilization. Right. There you go. The supply and utilization. So, and VO2 max is itself a product of oxygen supply and oxygen demand. So if you measure VO2, it's really, um, there's a few formulas that dictate VO2. And one of them is it's cardiac output. So how much blood can your heart pump and how much uh, multiplied, so the product of how much oxygen is taken off of the blood 
So the arterial venous difference. And this is urea two. Now there's a few other formulas that dictate how that, what actually happens in the muscle, but this is one of the general ones called the thick equation. And now if the big discussion around VO2 max that often happens and is disputed is if I have VO2 and what's limiting my VO2. So if I have a VO2 of 60, um, why isn't it 65 or 70? Because I want it to go up because higher is correlated with better performance. Um, and if you know that it's a product of oxygen supply and demand, you can then argue, well, maybe I'm being limited by either this oxygen supply component or this oxygen demand component. And those are obviously different things. An oxygen supply component is an argument more for this cardiac output side. So is my heart strong enough to move blood enough, right? Or is my respiratory system strong enough to load the blood that I'm moving with oxygen? Or you can argue it from this um, demand side or oxygen utilization side, where is my muscle even able to use the oxygen that my, my blood, uh, my heart is, is pumping through to it? And this is where NEARS is interesting, because what NEARS does, so what the MOXIE does is at a local level, it measures this change in oxygen. And so a decreasing value means at the moment of measurement, the balance between oxygen supply and oxygen demand is negative. So you are actually using more oxygen than you're supplying. That's why my oxygen saturation is decreasing. And if it's the other way around, if the value is going up, well, I'm supplying more oxygen than, than my muscle actually needs. And if I have this flat ear to steady state, it's balanced itself out. Um, so, now, if you look at the NEARS technology and you tell yourself, well, NEARS tells us something about oxygen supply and demand locally, and we're trying to figure out how do I improve my VO2 max, which is a question of oxygen supply and demand systemically, we then thought, well, can't I use this local measurement to identify if I'm actually using enough oxygen locally? And if I am, if I'm using the oxygen locally really well, well, then it's likely more of a systemic problem. So it's this supply problem. Okay, I, I hope everyone's following that. Um, and so what we started doing with testing is you, you would try to test and figure out, well, can the athlete in the sport that they actually want to do? So in, in, in hockey, we, we did it on the ice. A cyclist, we would do it um, on a cycling ergometer. And we would see... Um, at high intensities, if they're really utilizing their oxygen in, in the, the working muscle well. And if they were, so they were showing really low oxygen values, we would then argue, well, a training plan needs to now be established to increase the supply of oxygen. Because if you, if you do use a training plan that increases, that tries to further increase the utilization of oxygen, um, you're just going to keep making the problem worse because you already don't have any oxygen. So how are you going to, you can't utilize more and more and more of something that you don't have. And so the idea was to optimize this bioenergetic training by creating two simple groups. Again, it's oversimplified, but that's often the way it is if you want to make something practical. Um, and that's what we did with Alliance, right? We did this testing and looked at, hey, who's, who's really able to use oxygen and who isn't? And then we made these two training groups, right? The kind of the supply limited, and the demand limited. 
and, and, and try to adjust training to, to those, uh, those diagnostic results. I think, sorry about my train of thought there. I lost, I guess. Went off no, it tangent. was good. I mean, Spot Mike, on. you got it all right. 100%. Spot <laughs> on. And, and I, I had my mic off, but I was filling in some of the words as, as you were, as you were saying them. So it, it made, it made perfect sense. Now, if you're talking specifically, you're, you're looking at a local insertion of a device to measure the local function to try to get a, a systemic measurement. That's how you're, how, how did you go about, I, 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 that's the one thing I don't understand is how could you differentiate between it? Would you do blood lactate coupled with it? How would it go about? Yeah, so um, just about the, the, the device, um, it's a surface device, right? So it's all non-invasive, just so, just so um, people are clear. Um, and yeah, so this is, this is an, an issue, right? It's because the device only measures the muscle that you put it on. So if you put it on vastus lateralis, that's where it's measuring. But we're making um, inferences to, to the entire system, which you have to be careful about. Now, so generally speaking, at the very beginning, we did lots of comparisons with these systemic measures. So with blood lactate or with VO2 data. And so there's good correlations between, for example, blood lactate accumulation. So these, these classical curves and changes in this muscle oxygen value. Um, there's also good correlations between your ventilatory thresholds from your ergosperometry gas exchange and these values, even though the blood oxygenation values are on one single muscle. Um, now, there are issues with that. So if I put my MOXIE device or my nearest device on my bicep, okay, and I do bicep curls, the value is going to drop in my bicep very rapidly. But me, my system is not going to feel any of that, right? So there, there's, you need to be careful. But if you do whole body exercises, there's a general whole body response that's reflected in actually every muscle. And this is interesting. So if you take uh, novices and you take um, elite athletes, so for example, runners, if you take elite, like top, top marathon runners, and you put nearest devices on their legs and on their forearms. So forearms, you'd think that's nothing to do with running. You get the same like dynamics in the forearm as in the legs. You could do threshold testing on the forearm of these elite runners. You'd get, you'd get the same response because there's this, this global response. Whereas the, the amateur runners, they don't have that. You have to test on a muscle that's actually doing work. Um, and this gets back to a little bit this supply and demand limited. So if your problem is I can't get enough oxygen into the system, then the whole system has a oxygen uh, supply problem because the whole system is taxed. Whereas if you're actually getting enough oxygen in, then you, you can only measure any change in the muscle that's working and the other ones have get tons of oxygen anyways. Does that help you a little bit? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so when, when you're doing this, have you noticed a difference between limb to limb? So like right leg to left leg? So funnily enough, that's what my master's degree was based on. And we use the data from the, from the ice hockey players for this. And yes, there is. And was that a predictor of injury? 
I can't tell you conclusively because that what the data wasn't run. But we saw a differences basically in every single player. Yeah, so maybe I'll give you. So I don't do any rehab stuff. So I still feel like I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. a healthy athlete. So, so but, we just um, talk shit. We just, we just talk yeah, no, shit no, no, and, no, no. and pontificate. <laughs> no, which I think is great. And I think the question's totally valid. I, I'm trying to set up a big rehab project here with, uh, with Mockling and actually. Because I think it's people ask me this all the time and I'm always give the argument like, I don't know. I mean, maybe. Um, but maybe on that, a couple points. So right and left differences happen, uh, including in cycling. And I'm going to give you an example. So if you had pro cyclist um, and had uh, a lot of right leg pain, big right left leg moxie differences. And they're like, hey, this something's going on here. Brought him in, got him checked out. And what he had was a narrowing of the iliac artery. He wasn't getting blood flow in. Okay. Then they do stenosis. They open that up. Right left leg, same again. So there's, there's some pretty, like, I mean, this is, this is an extreme one because the recovery was so quick. It was really just like this thing was tightened and, and you open that up and now you're, you're good again. Um, but yeah, so you can, this is again, the problem with, with, this is the advantage and the problem with the technology. You, you get to measure right, left differences, which is interesting, but you have to make sure that if you're just measuring one leg and you want to make a systemic argument <laughs> that, mm. you know, it's, it's the systemic argument. Yes. So yeah. you need to spend maybe a little bit more time, you know, like, I, oh, you should do this always anyways. I mean, anybody who takes a diagnostic tool and like applies it once and makes any kind of training recommendations, I'm like, yeah, that's probably dumb. So if you're going to have a mox, you should probably use it over and over. Don't just do one test. I mean, it's easy to use, like, like data track that a bit and really see, is this my athlete? And, and, and then you can use it. But right, left differences do exist in cycling as well, even though not as often, because I mean, it's a, it's a pretty symmetrical thing. They're actually hamstring quad is, is more interesting. But hockey players, we've definitely had people, big right, left leg differences, where you then, we talked like a skate coach, and they'd be like, yeah, they got some funky push-off thing going as well. Um, what's interesting then, too, is if people have, like, uh, right-left leg differences, skating, but not, like, um, squatting or something. But you get people with right-left leg different squatting. We had a, one of the step-to-step players, I'm assuming we're not saying any names, who, who had a knee injury, I believe, knee or hip. Or, and there was a big right-left leg different squatting as well. I don't know if you remember, Alex. Yeah. But, so there's this idea of injury and right-left differences. I think there might be something there without saying there's something there. Well, with one of the things that I saw from, and I mean, from what I can remember was there was significant differences. However, there wasn't that much significance in how the legs responded to the demand of what was going on. So there was the same trends. They just had different starting values and there might be, the rate of uh, utilization of oxygen might be slightly different, but to say it was something big and significant, I, it didn't yeah. come through. So, so, so did you ever hook this up with the 1080 and utilize this simultaneously with the 1080, Brooker? But to do what? To do to so, do so to measure to measure force output with with systemic or local fatigue. 
And I mean, was there was there a correlation between uh, the lactic lactic levels on the one leg? And because you're going to when when you're with the 1080, you'll see horizontal force production, and you'll be able to see the difference between legs. So was there a difference sure. between force output between legs? Yes, there's always change. There's always differences. They wasn't partnered all together. In associated associated with it is what I mean. Right. So we never, we never, we never chucked the moxies on to all the guys when we were doing our testing with that. We kept it all separate. Um, I guess the year, if we would have continued working, it would have all kept going. With that, would have probably been the next step was combining the two together. Um, but one of the things that I mean, and I remember your dad talking about this, Andre, and Andre's dad. He's the definition of a mad scientist. Like Cal Deeds is a mad scientist, but Andre's dad is a mad scientist. He introduced himself as a goat farmer to me the first time and ended <laughs> up being one of the most well-read physiologists. He was, what was he? He, he was always talking about horse physiology and saying how that was relating to, to humans. And he would mention that he was training a hockey player that had a, a lower limb injury and he was improving the cardiovascular properties of the player by just doing like, Delt raises and, and upper body work. And I was like, there's no way that's improving his gas tank on his legs. Like, there's no way. And then he would explain why. And this, you know, and he, one of the other things that he mentioned too, which comes to my mind with that same skier that we was talking about, when you guys measured her doing a ski run, the beauty of the Moxie 2 found, because it looks at blood flow and not just oxygen, is that uh, she was going through complete full body occlusion right? During the, the ski race. And no one would have thought that, right? Yeah. That's not been measured before. But the fact that you can put it on someone when they're doing sport, when they're playing a game, when they're doing a competition, you can get such good data that otherwise it's all, you know, it's theoretical based in a lab. That's I mean, okay, yeah, the mox, the mox is crazy. The, the, the one, for sure. One of the things is that also, um, and so I, I mean, my dad. The reason I do all this is because of my dad. So he, he's 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 crazy for sure, um, <laughs> you know, crazy like a fox. Uh, <laughs> uh, but he, I always have to pull people back with uh, with with the mox as well because people do do a lot of crazy stuff with it. Where I'm always like, hmm, I don't know about this, uh, and I'm gung ho for it. I'm, I'm I think it's it's a it's a fantastic tool. Um, I'm one. Well, yeah. So I definitely think. Uh, um, and the, maybe back to the right left thing. So, cause I do think that's really interesting. And so I've done a bunch of research with, with elite climbers and we do forearm, uh, measurements. And so climbing is a great application for nears because all these classical measures. So gas exchange, VO2, blood lactate, those are all nonsensical for, uh, sport climbers. You don't, you don't, it doesn't correlate with any kind of performance because it's, it's really predicated a lot on this like really forearm local fatigue. Um, and so now with NEARS, you get to do this measurement on this forearm. You, you really get to kind of zoom in on these, these problems and you get this big dominant, non-dominant arm difference. And what you also see is uh, uh, you see then the fatiguing rates that the right and the left hand don't necessarily fatigue the same with the, with the non-dominant hand uh, fatiguing quicker than the dominant hand um, but you see this kind of in live terms of physiology and what's what's interesting uh, for a strength conditioning coach i mean i, I think that this is probably common not it's common knowledge or people at least they, they it's it's prophesized i guess is common knowledge so is you really get uh 
with the nearest data, you see the effect of this high intensity HIIT training and uh, over longer periods of time. So not just during the training, but you see a response in the signal that's happening uh, after the training, 24 hours after that, 48 hours after that, um, that you can still follow. So you see the changed physiology and you see it hasn't actually recovered yet because the dynamics of your oxygen utilization and your oxygen supply is still different from that, likely from that specific training. Um, and you see right and left hand differences for that. So how is this device? And you, you could, you could just say no comment if, if it's like, you know, patent protected sort of thing, but how are you going about actually measuring things locally over the skin? Yeah. So, I mean, th this isn't, uh, isn't patent protected. Uh, the, well, I mean, there's a patent, but you can go and look at it. So it, it's, it's nice and complicated. So. Uh, we're not too worried about it. Um, yeah, so it's, let's just do the basics. So it does, it's near-infrared spectroscopy. That's the technology. Um, for any viewers who are like, I don't know what that is, everyone knows what that is. If you've been in a hospital and you put on a pulse oximeter, those little clip things in your fingers, especially with COVID, those are super popular right now. Um, or you watch Grey's Anatomy, they all got those little things in their fingers. Um, that is also near-infrared spectroscopy. Okay, and what it does is it, it sends infrared light into your tissue. And if, if, uh, if you're a kid and you put a flashlight on your hand, you know that light can propagate through tissue because your hand glows, right? So the light can go through tissue. And infrared lights specifically can penetrate very deep. And um, in the infrared spectrum, uh, you can differentiate between oxygenated hemoglobin, so oxygenated red blood cells, and deoxygenated hemoglobins, deoxygenated red blood cells. Um, and uh, because they absorb this infrared light at a different wavelength. So you can basically, the easiest is it's in this light, those two molecules look like they have different colors. And so you can count them and separate them. And then all of a sudden you can, uh, you can generate this, this value uh, for, for uh, oxygenation. Now, the difference between a pulse oximeter, which goes on your finger, is the pulse oximeter specifically only looks at the pulsation part, and everything else gets ignored. And so the pulsation part in your finger is always arterial blood, blood coming from your heart. That's what the pulse is, and that's why you get arterial oxygen saturation. The problem with arterial um, oxygen saturation is it's not very dynamic. It's always... 100% or 97% or 98%. Um, that's why you control it in the hospital. It should always be really high. What happens with people with COVID, their blood oxygen drops down. That's why they're always monitoring it. So, so their, their arterials drops down. You, that value should always be high. But because it's always 100% or close to that, it's not very interesting for athletics because you're, you're, you're you're measuring this performance profile and it's just 99% the whole time. So, I mean, it's not going to give you any information. And it, once it drops below 95 or 94% during exercise, you already give it a special name. It's called um, exercise induced arterial hypoxemia. So it's not supposed to change. Uh, what, what nears muscle nears devices do is that it doesn't take the pulsating part. Um, you put it on a muscle and you send it in. And um, it only localizes in on the little blood vessels, on the capillaries. 
and this is the capillaries are in, in the muscle. So it only looks at the blood vessels that are basically in this oxygen exchange area. So you get this highly dynamic value for oxygenation in the muscle. How's that? So that, that's awesome. I understand it. Um, <laughs> so when, when I use pulse oximeters, they're inconsistent as hell. They're, they're almost unreliable in some instances. I've had, I've had five different pulse oximeters on the same finger, switch, 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 switch. And they all say something different. Um, maybe, maybe two will agree with each other, right? Uh, they're, they're, as far as I'm concerned, they're pieces of shit. Um, how, but how much difference are you getting in those? So, so uh, we use, I've used a, uh, oh my gosh, I forget what the name of it is. Um, it's an oxygen deprivation bag. Uh, mm -hmm. The Live, Live O2 or Live O2 or whatever it's called, right? It's the Epoch stuff, Andre. Yeah, yeah. I, I assume it would be something like that. I haven't heard of the brand, I guess, but so that's that's one of the companies that I've used. I had I had my yeah. guy Kevin Love buy it. It's like I don't know, like ten grand or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so we did we did oxygen deprivation, followed by saturation, right? So he went, and so monitoring it is the biggest pain in the ass because I've I we've had it on. Now they've told me that if you have it on opposite hands, like if you have one on one hand, one on the other hand, it can have asymmetrical results. I've had asymmetrical results on fingers within the same hand. And then I've even switched within and still haven't had consistent results with some of these. So my, as from, from a reliability standpoint or consistency standpoint, what's, how, how consistent have you, have you had it, had it tested? How do you, how do you like kind of, wheel and deal throughout all that stuff to make sure like that, that it's like a quality, a quality thing, because that would drive me nuts. Um, so uh, about the, the, the arterial, so the, the pulse oximeters that normal, I, I had some crap pulse oximeters because I mean, you can buy them real cheap. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do feel if you get a good quality one that it, it's pretty consistent and overall fingers and right and left hand, you should get plus minus a percent the same value if you're not that's weird i mean arterial mm -hmm. oxygen saturation doesn't vary like this should not be a problem so i don't, I don't know what's going on that's that's funky i mean yeah that's terrible i mean if, if you can't trust your measurement tool whatever it is mm -hmm. and it makes the athletes insecure it makes you insecure the athlete gets insecure because you're insecure <laughs> it's just you know the death spiral um okay now so about mirrors so so I, I use one specific nearest device that I'm the co-developer of, Moxie. Um, obviously, I think that's a great device. But there's lots of other devices out there. And this is a general problem for the technology is there's no gold standard. There's not like this one nearest device where they say, this is the right one. Everyone has to measure like this. That, that doesn't exist. And the problem, the essential problem with the technology is um, that you can't do blood draws of muscle capillaries, right? I can't do an experiment yeah. and say, okay, my, my nearest device says 70%. I'm going to pull this little blood out here and check it. So mm -hmm. it, that, that, that just doesn't work. Um, and, and so it's hard to, to be like, well, is this really the actual value? Now, the, the rationale that, that we then apply is what you can do, you can take venous blood. You can take like from a big vein, you can draw blood. So the blood that's going back to the heart. And 
that'll give you, you can then check what, what is the oxygen saturation of this, this, this pooled venous blood return. And if you measure that, whatever you would measure that value at, say 30%, your nearest value in the muscle that's returning blood to that, that vein cannot be higher because that would be weird. Mm -hmm. That, right? And the argument would be if you're measuring a muscle, it is more likely has to be something lower. And the rationale is that this mixed venous blood is not just blood coming from muscles, which is what you're measuring. It's also coming from all the other tissue, for example, surface tissue like skin. But skin isn't metabolically active or not as metabolically active. So it'll have a higher percentage, which is mixing in, which is increasing the overall percent value of what you're measuring in the veins. So you, ca you create like a ceiling cap of like, okay, my device should measure below this value. And if it is, then it feels like it's probably doing something right. Mm -hmm. um, that's, uh, and, and so classically what, what, Nears what Nears did, which I think is the most robust way, is what you would do in an experimental setting is you would do an occlusion. So you'd pop your Nears device on your arm, you would tie your arm off, and that the signal, your oxygenation and the signal would drop and it would drop and it would drop. And after three, four, five, six minutes, it would plateau out. And now if you get this plateau, you would say, well, that's 0%. That's, that's as low as I can go. If signals stop going anywhere, it might not be 0%. You don't know. I mean, you could do the venous blood and venous blood is never 0%. So it's probably higher than 0%. But you can just calibrate it and say, well, this is my zero. Yeah. yeah. Um, that, that's classically what's done. Now, this is really annoying to do. You have athletes and you got to occlude everyone's arm all the time, unless you're a big BFR component. Like, um, but the, the Moxie, to, to do a little bit of, of, of advertising here for our device, it does a pretty good job at that. If you occlude anyone's arm, everyone's going to get down to like, you know, eight, nine, 10%. It'll bottom out there. No one's stopping at 35%. So this is how we create this reliability discussion. Okay. So at least as long as it's, I mean, realistically, it's, it's just like the body fat thing, right? It really doesn't matter what percent it says, as long as it's a consistent percent that we could base it off of. And then we base our, you know, it's, it's kind of like the analogy right? You're, you're just basing it off of that imaginary number, but as long as that imaginary number is proportionate consistently throughout, like that's, that's kind of all that matters. Like the body fat, we don't even know how, how accurate our real body fat measurements are, right? So that, as long as it's reliable and consistent, that's, that's what I care about. The accuracy isn't, isn't really the biggest thing for me. Um, now, how deep does it measure down, right? Do you, do you say it measures down millimeter, centimeter, two centimeters. And if that's the case, going on a forearm, right? Like you're going to hit the radius in certain areas, you're going to hit the ulna. How do you, how do you prevent any kind of error from objects or, or any kind of artifacts? If someone has, let's say some kind of contusion where calcium develops and there's not going to be as, as good a blood flow. How, how do you kind of work around that? Mm -hmm. So uh, the measurement depth is always half the distance of where you're like sending the infrared light in to where you're receiving it again. Now, if you make that infinitely big, you've, you've got a problem of, of losing signal, but within a certain 
with a, a normal distance. Um, so for for the device I use, for example, it's you get about 15 millimeters, so 1.5 centimeters. Okay. Now this is a problem with uh, a population that isn't athletic. Um, Fat okay. So yeah, you said it, not me. <laughs> yeah, this is a problem. Um, now uh, there, there's there's different ways you can deal with this problem. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's an issue. And so what happens if you get people with more than 15 millimeters, you're basically measuring more and more just fat. And then the signal gets really blunted. You just end up getting a flatter and flatter signal because you're getting less and less return from, from the muscle, which is definitely, which is definitely an issue. Um, about uh, the you were saying about like other things like calcium deposits or like blood flow problems. Um, infrared. So first of all, you, you shouldn't use the, the devices have like a muscle oxygen devices have a specific technique they apply and, and different devices use them differently. But you shouldn't use, you should be careful which device you use to measure what. So you can use NEARS to measure brain uh, blood volume changes as well. There's nearest devices that do that. Now, but if you have, for example, the device that I use, it's not made for that. So it uses a very specific modeling technique, a Monte Carlo modeling technique, where it says, hey, we have, uh, we have skin, we have fat, and we have muscle. That's what's there. That's what our device is modeling. Um, and if, in, if, if I'm getting any signal from all three of them, the device will be a good job measuring that. Now, if, if the depth is, if you have more fat than the 50 millimeters, you, your model falls apart because you only have two components of the model and you don't have the muscle component anymore. So it goes all kind of haywire because um, you're not getting any signal from the muscle. Um, but if all of a sudden I put it on my head, I have, like you said, like, a, you know, now I have bone matter in between, that's going to be a problem. If the bone matter comes after, that's not really an issue because it just kind of goes, again, you, the signal gets gets thrown out there anyways, because it's only bringing back um, this uh, oxy or deoxy or uh, hemoglobin, myoglobin. So that, that's not really such a big problem. It, it, it is an issue if you, if you have someone who's like real wiry, right? And you put the device on somewhere where essentially there's no muscle, yeah. you know, just like kind of on the front of the forearm or something, you're going to get a funky measure. You, you know, you need to, you want to have, the best is kind of some well-developed muscle with a certain amount of surface area that you can put the device on. Um, but yeah, there's definitely limitations. Like sometimes, especially with like, with, with, with like, you know, we, we get some, we get some female athletes, like endurance type athletes, and they'll have like, like really skinny arms and like the, the devices, you can almost not even really put it on their arm to get a surface area to get any kind of measurement from. So yeah, there's problems. There's definitely limitations there. Okay. So Andre, mate, now because it's so easy to collect the, the data in its real time, have there been fluctuations in the daily oxygen, like local oxygen measurements? And if yes, could it ever be used as such a thing that like HRV, people take their HRV each day, would there be ever correlations with HRV if you measured, okay, my muscles better today than, than it was yesterday, for example? Yeah, so I, I tried. I, I think I did a bad job commenting, commenting on that for the climbing study. But yeah, so 
we've done some studies with climbers, but there's other studies, for example, uh, you know, long-term effect of eccentric work um, where you, you do get this kind of long-term-ish change in these, in these near signals um, that return to normal after some period of time. So if you, we, we saw this with our climbers as well. I've seen this with cyclists. Um, and there's studies that have shown this with, with heavy centric work where, for example, your resting value for your muscle oxygenation is elevated after this kind of heavy training. And uh, it'll stay elevated for a certain period of time and then it comes back, comes back down. So there's maybe something here for like athlete readiness. Um, if, if someone really tracks their resting muscle oxygen values that they may be like, hey, this is abnormal. Um, I'm, um, I'm always a little bit skeptical about resting values with muscle oxygenation in that at rest, when the system's all down regulated, you have a really low cardiac output, you have a low blood flow and you have low muscle, um, oxygen consumption. So everything's like super low. And now you're measuring the signal and small changes in this. So small upticks in heart rate or small changes in muscle activity, all of a sudden these really big effects on this signal, because remember, it's a percentage. It, it's always relative to what, to what, you're, what, you're, what you're measuring in. So um, you need to then be careful that you, you can get really funky changes with very little, very little um, impact, a uh, little impact. Um, what I think it's more likely is that once, if you apply it in like uh, your warm up, for example, when you get the system going and your cardiac output goes up, your muscle oxygen utilization goes up. So the whole thing gets revved up and now small changes have less of an impact. Um, so you can, you're better at noticing, well, am I really different today than I was yesterday in this like revved up uh, environment? Um, if that makes sense. So that's what I tend to tell people. Makes complete sense. I mean, we never make decisions on what we're doing for the day until after we're warmed up. So makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what, what you had said to that Brooker too, with, with the HRV and obviously if, and I shouldn't say obviously, but if your heart rhythm isn't consistent, it's going to have the impact on the amount of work that it has to do. And the, the amount of work that it has to do, it's going to increase the resting heart rate or it's going to increase or, or drop your max heart rate and increase your ability to buffer out the hydrogen or, or produce or not produce lactic acid, right? And that's essentially what this is measuring. So when, do, you, do, you have, do you have anything with this product that does HRV? Or um, any so, kind of heart rate regulation? Like this, this seems like an all-in-one, because if you could do all that, you could measure it like this, a one-stop shop all at once. You could, you could do readiness instantly. Yeah, so... So I uh, like the, the Garmin watches and uh, that, you know, that do the, the pulse measurements on, uh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, those HRV. So the technology there is very similar. It also, right? So we're, we're doing a similar thing. And, and uh, you, can, you can measure heart rate with the Moxie. It works. Uh, the, the problem is the advantage of measuring on your wrist here is you don't really have that much active muscle that's going to mess up your signal. Whereas as soon as you start, doing like at rest it works really well and yeah. as soon as you start doing any kind of activity it goes haywire because the muscles the muscles working those contractions are working 
and it, it doesn't it doesn't uh, measure accurately anymore. What it does in that case do though is you can uh, track your cycling cadence on it because every time you're going around, the muscle contracts and does this. It <laughs> you can you can measure how how quick you're. Uh, you have enough uh, resolution. Yeah, that works. Uh, so to the point is, yes, you theoretically, you could. Um, we don't do it because of the error potentials. We just don't feel that we, we it's not robust enough to do it. And there's other tools that do it really well. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so why even dive into it? Um, uh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, that's just so <laughs> tangent. I mean, there's so, uh, there have been other nears, so the, the Moxie, was the first this kind of consumer oriented nearest device the first one in the market and uh, we're, we're we're fairly conservative with with what we say or we try to be um mm -hmm. and there have been other devices that have come online and what they have promised what they're going to be able to do and we're just like well sit together like with roger he's like the, the the engineer he's the brain behind everything he's like man if they can do that they're just better because he's <laughs> like i've been trying to do this for a long time, <laughs> it, it doesn't work. You can't get it to do that. And uh, it always turns out that they, they can't get it to do that, right? So things just aren't always possible. How, how long does the battery last on it? Um, yeah, so the, the new devices are six hours plus. And that's just like the, what the manufacturer of the battery gives, like six hours plus. Um, you can then change some sampling rate stuff to make it more or less. Um, and the, of course, you know, after a couple of years of charging cycles, it, it drops off. Do you have the ability to do, uh, EMG as well? Uh, no, we don't do EMG. Um, so, I mean, at the university, I, I have an EMG tool, mm -hmm. but the, the, the device doesn't do EMG. Um, I think that's a super interesting combination that should get worked on like an all in one EMG. Yeah. Um, and. The signal response is pretty similar. It's like a lot of overlap what's going on, right? When you have EMG activity, you get a change in muscle oxygenation. Like these things are, are really tightly knit together, especially this idea of like systemic fatigue, local fatigue, um, combining EMG and, uh, and the muscle oxygenation. I think there's lots of potential. Um, I don't do as much EMG work as I would like. Um, so I've, I've done some, but it's, I would by, by no means think that I'm kind of an EMG expert. So, but I think you have definitely, you're onto something. If you nearest EMG combination, you're, you're there. Yeah. So, so if the, if the battery life is six hours, right, how long does it take to charge a thing? <laughs> I should know all these things. I always, I always <laughs> forget all, all these, I expect. The, the, the technical specifications was like ah, i keep reading them and i forget them it doesn't take very long it's like an hour it's like uh, the new ones are like wireless like induction chargers you like pop them on this whole thing it takes like I mean, an hour i mean there's there's no reason to believe that you can't get a full-on you can't come up with your own algorithm for a full-on readiness score because if it's the muscle contraction that gets in the way of the measurement of the heart rate right to put this mm. on someone's thigh or on their arm while they're asleep and you could take that data and now you can make this an all-in-one. So now you measure how long their fatigue takes while they're exercising and you combine that with the sleep score and eventually you get enough, you get enough data, all of a sudden you have the most accurate measurement of HRV and, and readiness that anyone can have. And you actually also have it because you're, you're, uh, who, else, who else is doing the uh, uh, combining this with blood oxygen levels? Maybe we should do this off the damn podcast. Holy shit. Here we go. And it's not, but what's cool is, is that you're looking at it from a, 
from a global point as well as the local point. So you're yeah. looking at it the whole way through. Yeah. I, I don't see why you can't do this now. <clears throat> the algorithm, the data collection is the hardest part probably. Um, yeah. So I, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm there. I, I think that there's lots of potential there. I, I'm, I'm always a skeptic at heart. I try to not, but I, um, yeah, I, 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 I think that there's, 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 there's potential there. I'm always worried. Uh, the, the error, I'm always, you know, more of a, it's not going to work then it's going to work kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's, that's what makes a good product. That's what makes yeah. a, a good tester. So I'm, I'm with you on that. I always, mm. always question it. So you're, you're on the right track, I think. Mm. So, Andre, I mean, we mentioned it already, and it's funny because I forgot all about it. Now, that live O2 bag that Mike was talking about. Yeah. Mike was speaking a lot about this and this technology and stuff like that. And the claims look really good. And I reached out to you and asked you about it. And that skeptic mind of yours was like, yeah, I'm not quite sure and all of that. Could you go into a little bit of the physiology behind what it is and why, like, what it claims might not be completely true and what it could offer. So it's just to make sure that we are talking about the right thing. So the, it, it does, it's like a hypoxia, like an intermittent hypoxia device, right? Yeah. But I think you can also do hyperox. Like so hyperoxia so there's, too. there's yeah. two, yeah, there's, there's two sections. There's like, yeah. there's like 90% oxygen and there's like 65% oxygen. Yeah. And then you train in the 65% until you get to like below 80% uh, blood oxygen levels. Then you switch on to the 90 yeah. and super saturate it for until it reaches a hundred and then, yeah. then you're done. So, so there, what, what, what I've been told is that the, the hypoxic into like the super saturation is supposed to be glorious. You know what I mean? It's, it's having all these benefits and, and just by pumping it, you know, instantly with, with all this pure oxygen and all it, they're, they're saying that there's a lot of benefits that are occurring. And I think even including, I, I could be way off on this, but increasing mitochondrial density as well by the deprivation with the saturation. So go have at it. Let me, let me know. <laughs> go wild on that. Um, I, I, so I think hypoxia and hyperoxy and the combination of two have uh, p potential benefits. And I think there's pretty good data on, on both of those that they can be. Um, I'm always skeptical. What I'm skeptical of is this like broadband of like, you just do it on everyone. It's going to work with everyone. Um, just generally there's, there's a lot of non-responders or let's say not as positive responders or even negative responders to a lot of these different, uh, I, and you get that. So you, you get, you read this research and all this, you know, hypoxia works and it'll always give you some means, right? It'll be like before control group and like the before and after groups and stuff. And it looks great because they all have these significant results. Um, and then you actually go talk to people and you try to find the data and you realize, yeah, but of your, you know, 20 participants, five of them didn't have any response, but 10 of them had huge response. So you get this like nice mean that you can calculate it out on. That happens a lot. Um, I, 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 one of my pet peeves is if, if you have less than 30 participants in a study, you should really try to at least show the res, res, response of everyone. So you can see who didn't actually, how many of them didn't actually follow the response that you're saying would happen. Um, so that's a, that's a side note. Now, this goes a little bit into, I'll, I'll talk about the, the, the hypoxia part. Uh, 
into this supply and demand component. So uh, the classic way of, of hypoxic training was altitude training. You would go to altitude and that showed some pretty good results. You get some people get pretty good altitude uh, results with, and some people had none. And so you get these really mixed data sets with, with altitude training and with intermittent hypoxic training as well. And so you get this clear non-responder group. And in my opinion, the reason for this is that is exactly the point that uh, if your performance, uh, your, let's say your aerobic performance is based on oxygen supply and demand, but you can be limited by either or if, to keep it simple demand or supply and hypoxia as a stimulus um, at, the, at the demand level, at the local oxygen level. Um, and, but if, if you already are really good at using oxygen and you do a hypoxic response, you're, you're going to have trouble making more gains there. Um, you need to actually, you know, you need to su supply more, more oxygen. So, um, it's, I, I, sorry, I made a mistake there. Uh, the hypoxia has, uh, has a systemic uh, effect. So it, you create more blood or red blood cells. So you're bringing more oxygen in, but if you don't need any of that more oxygen, you're not going to have this huge benefit. And you, you, I do find that endurance athletes, like good endurance athletes have a better response to hypoxic training than like amateur ones. Well, yeah, um, they're, they're trained, they're trained in deprivation, right? So, yeah. so, so they're just used to it. It's, it's, you know, that's, that makes sense. That they're, they're also the ones that have a better impact on like ITPO. So if you give people, if you dope up, Mm -hmm. uh, pros, they have a much better response than if you dope up amateurs. Um, well, because I mean, the, basically if you get EPO, you, you generate this super boosted oxygen supply system. Um, but if oxygen supply was never your problem because you've got tons of oxygen, it's Shitty not going to help capacity. you as, not going to help you as much, right? You, you yeah. should really um, and I think that's one of the problems with, with hypoxic, uh, with hypoxic training and hypo hyperoxia training. is like the other side, the advantage of hyperoxia training is if someone has this huge problem of getting enough oxygen. So it, it's hard to really then train the local muscle because it's always undersaturated. Like you're not bringing enough oxygen in. Mm -hmm. Um, it's going to help there, right? Because you're going to, you're going to super boost this more oxygen. I mean, the problem is a little bit, are you just going to keep advancing this, this local stimulus and then in the race, you don't get it and you may just run into more of a deficit problem. Um, but a, the data is pretty good that it works. I'm not, I'm not too worried about that. One, one of the more interesting things is that what is often an issue is less, uh, it, it's, it's less of a, how much, oxygen well how much oxygen am i supplying but it's like a it's a blood pressure issue so often what happens is that if you have this athlete and he has this crazy these crazy legs this crazy capillarization and he starts uh working really hard and he's opening all these blood vessels um he he actually has to down regulate his performance because his blood pressure will drop mm -hmm. right and, and so there's some work by Holmberg with cross-country skiers where they do upper body and they do lower body and then they do upper and lower body. Um, and the work capacity, upper body, lower body added together is always way more than upper and lower body. Because essentially, if you just do upper body, um, 
it, it, the upper body can open up more because it doesn't also have to feed the lower body. And if you just do the lower body, it can open up more because your arms aren't doing anything. But if you do them both, you have to find a balance. And one of the problems is that you just don't have enough blood. I mean, you have a certain amount of blood in your system. And if you then are opening up all these blood vessels, all these pathways, your blood pressure would drop and your body doesn't let that. So it actually starts reducing blood flow to a lot of these areas to maintain blood pressure. And that then reduces performance. Um, so just juicing up your blood with oxygen, if you don't have that much blood, is a problem. That's why for a lot of athletes, giving plasma expanders is already helpful. Like you don't have to give any more red blood cells. You just have to make their blood volume higher. And that's helpful um, because it stabilizes blood pressure. So, so one of the things that they're that these these oxygen people right there and it's it's not just the one company there's there's a lot of like everyone's everyone's a zealot with shit i guess they're like oxygen zealots with this like they they're saying that by getting enough oxygen now it's going to improve your sleep it's going to by by doing things like this it'll improve sleep it'll improve recovery it'll how how is the deprivation coupled with the saturation hypo plus hyper that combination how could that possibly be i don't know more beneficial than just going on a run becoming hypoxic than taking your time slowing down breathing and getting back to 100% oxygen level like why 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 does the 90% oxygen matter does it matter in your yeah, opinion so, yeah so so one of the things that does happen is that like a lot of of like your metabolic pathways to how you're generating energy is related to oxygen of availability. So like, like you just said, if you, if you, if you do some hyperoxia, what happens, for example, with lactate, which is a very simple uh, measurement tool to assess met metabolism is basically your, your glucose glycogen metabolism is shown in lactate production, the balance of it. And so, what happens is if you give someone hyperoxia, the whole curve of this lactate accumulation is blunted and it's pushed out. And how happens later? So this whole um, imbalance of, of glycolysis um, and glycogenolysis is balanced out by having more oxygen available. This is the argument that it says that you that it enhances. So you get this increased PGC expression, which is like a precursor to mitochondrial biogenesis mm -hmm. um, that essentially because uh, you're allowing uh, the, the, the oxidative pathways to work more effectively because you're never limiting oxygen availability, you're getting a better training stimulus there. That's the hyperoxia argument. But like you said, if your body can't get the oxygen when the competition is there, it downregulates the system anyway. Yes. I mean, that's going to, if you, that's what happens if you go to, if you've never done this, but you go to altitude there, everything gets down regulated, right? Well, whatever the term you want to use, yeah, your performance goes to crap. Um, and this is, but again, there is data that says that there's some transfer to that. Okay. Um, I, 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 so I've read literature on this. I don't do hyperoxia. I've done hyperoxia lab work where I play around with oxygen levels for my nears research, mm -hmm. but I haven't done any research on like, you know, 
hyperoxia training effect. So I, I'm just spitting back what I've read um, on yeah. that, right? Um, I'm always, yeah, I'm always skeptical of doing things that are way different. I, I think you, you should, your training should reflect your event, right? That's also like, if, if, if you, if you know my world championships are going to be in Rio de Janeiro and it's going to be 40 degrees and humid as, as fuck, are we allowed to swear in here? Oh, assuming we're allowed to fuck yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dad now. I gotta be careful. Right. So, um, yeah. So, and it's humid as fuck. And so, and you're doing all your training at like 20 degrees, perfect. You know, it, it's like, that just doesn't make any sense. And so, for example, the, I talk a lot, a uh, bunch with the, the trainers of the Norwegian triathlon team. They're, they're top right now. And they do a lot of that. Do, they do a lot of actually moxie training work as well. And they use the moxie to basically be like, hey, so we're in Norway now, and now we're flying, and we're going to Brazil. Now, we know what your moxie response is in Norway during your training, what happens now that you're in Brazil and you just got jet lagged and it's 40 degrees out and it's humid and you see the change in thing. I'm like, okay, now we need to change, you know, don't keep riding your 300 Watts because your 300 Watts in Brazil are 400 Watts. Like it's not going to be the same. And then they, they, they adjust, uh, they adjust for that. Um, and I'm way off my tangent there, but does, does that all follow somehow? Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> You're, you're all right. You're sure, <laughs> so, so here's, here's something that I've noticed with it. And, and you let me know your thoughts when I'm training on it and I go into hyper oxygen, my heart rate can go through the roof and I don't get fatigued. Why? Because I'm able to filter out all the shit. Cause I'm funneling tons of oxygen there. It makes sense. How does that impact now now training at that high level like for my heart rate to be at that high of a level for a significant period of time while still having the saturation would that transfer to local improvement would that be the the localized endurance is that a good way to do it or would it be negative because i'm still not getting the hypoxic training did I phrase that properly? Um, uh, I'm not sure what you're trying to say, but <laughs> so what, um, this is exactly the point. I think you do the hyperoxic training, you're going to get, I think you can get a supercharged local response because basically you are like assisting your supply system, right? You're, you're putting you're, the battery pack on. Yeah, right. So um, like you said, your, your heart rate per watt level actually comes down but you can, you can perform more high, right? So before, if you, if you do hyperoxia at 200 Watts, you would have had 150 heart rate. Now you have 140 because it's just easier. Mm -hmm. Everything's easier. Um, so you can, you can supercharge, you can do all the super max work, right? Um, that's always been the question is if, if that's useful or not. Now, generally, I think there is some consensus that there is, but it's not so clear because not everyone's doing it. I mean, it's not hard to supplement oxygen. This isn't uh, that difficult um so but not everyone everyone's doing it for some some reason i mean and it's been around for a while i mean yeah. i know yes i know super eyes this isn't something new um it kind of cycles in and out again um and uh, yeah i i i think i think there, there is a there there and i think the main thing is to figure out when how and how to dose it and um 
it's like BFR. Like I think I think BFR is is probably very useful, but it kind of has the same problem that you supercharge a local. You have the supercharged local effect on your muscle, and uh, and then how useful is that uh, in the long term? Which is like uh, there's in Switzerland that there's some there's some groups that do a lot of kind of occlusion blood flow restriction training, and they're really big on it. Like this is the mother mm-hmm. of all training systems. And they did a lot with the Swiss uh, national ski team. And, and one summer they did, I think, like, yeah, we were talking about this, Alex. I think yeah. they did, like, the whole summer they did this this occlusion training, just like wing gates and tying off your leg. Um, and they had, like, tons of injury results after. Like, and it's just like, yeah, well, it's, you know, you, you're getting, like, all this metabolite accumulation in your legs. You're not letting it go anywhere. And you're repeating this over and over Okay, high stimulus, but I mean, you have other structures in your leg as well. That is, yeah, and, and yeah, it's. But we see it a lot, right? Like in research, I mean, you mentioned the difference between college students and elite athletes, mm-hmm. but there's also a huge difference between what you do in a lab over four weeks and an athlete is as three years away that they're still trying to work towards and they've got all these this history of injuries and problems and they're away from their sport doing something else so how much does it really transfer over to so it's all it's all really really hard um when i was at university in loughborough i remember in exercise physiology the professor mentioning that lactate doesn't make you get tired and that was the first time that i heard of it and this was all those years back now i still hear people saying that people get tired because of lactate. I don't know if there's a consensus out now, or maybe it's a pretty hard question, but why do we get tired? <laughs> oh man, why do we get tired? <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't think there's a consensus. Um, so one of the most popular theories for a long time is kind of an acidosis proton accumulation theory, which is off long tied to, to lactate. It isn't anymore. Um, but that's still a, like the acidosis thing is still is still the problem is there's there's a lot of uh, data and and experiments that show like highly acidic environments with super contracting muscle fibers so there's some contradiction there. Um, inorganic phosphate accumulation is also often considered. Um, there's like uh, potassium depletion. There's a lot of different uh, ideas out there. And all of these are very like muscle local, like what's stopping the local muscle from contracting. Um, and these are all kind of in this peripheral fatigue model. Like it, you get this, you get your, your peripheral muscles are getting tired and they can't contract anymore. Um, then uh, there's also like these central fatigue models. Mm-hmm. So the central governor is one of these models from Timothy Noakes. And there's, there's lots of debate back and forth between these different groups. And the, the, the central governor model is more along the lines of your, your, ner- your central nervous system has a governor and he tells you when you can no longer perform your exercise because you will endanger your system. Um, and, uh, and I mean, this, when the central governor tells you to do this is obviously then linked to things like proton accumulation or, I mean, th- these are, these are inter- intertwined, right? It's just kind of like a top down or a, um, uh, let's say a, a, a federal or a statewide approach, right? So if it's top down or it's bottom up, um, I I tend to agree with the central governor approach. I think that makes more sense, of evolutionary perspective. 
that uh, you have uh, defense mechanisms um, and that you have a central governor that's uh, basically a central system that's telling you to, to stop or not. Um, there's, there's, there's a bunch of other research out, for example, uh, that your respiratory muscles can get fatigued and when they get fatigued, you actually reduce blood flow to the working muscle. So in cycling to your legs. This makes sense in the context of a central governor. And the central governor basically says, if your respiratory muscles get fatigued and they no longer can maintain work and breathing, you're dead. So I need to make sure you stop exercising. So I'm gonna do that by basically turning your legs off. So I would stop blood flow to your legs, then you have to reduce performance and I protect my, my uh, respiratory muscles. Um, this is also one of the ideas of, of respiratory training, right? To make your respiratory muscles more efficient so this reflex doesn't kick in as quickly. This, this Metabo reflex, it's Dempsey and colleagues in the U.S. were one of the first to, uh, to identify this. This is a factor, which is interesting in, in training, right? That your respiratory muscles can limit performance. Um, but then Noax talks about the same thing being there with just your cardiac system. So if, if it was a peripheral fatigue problem, if your periphery stopped performance, it, you would always be able to just maximize your cardiac output, your heart rate. It will always go as hard as it can until your, um, your muscles give out. But when you go to altitude, your whole heart performance decreases. It's like, why would your heart performance decrease at altitude? Why, you know it can do more at sea level. Why is it going down at altitude? Well, because the heart itself starts having problems. So it needs to, it needs to slow down. Um, because otherwise, if the heart stops beating, you're dead. Uh, whereas anything happens with your muscles, you generally you're not dead. I mean, maybe you're not walking, so the, the tiger will get you at some point in time. But, um, you know, you have a couple minutes more. Does that, does that help sure. a little bit? It, it does. Um, and it, I, I think the reason why I wanted to ask is because I think a lot of it is based on what is the demand that's in front of you too, because some people have these feats where they're able to do things that under normal circumstances they might not be able to. Now, if we look at the central governor theory based on, a disaster situation or life and death or huge uh, emotional stress, we're able to sort of get a little bit extra out. Of course, we can't sort of break the rules of physics, but that kind of makes a lot more sense. I just wasn't sure what the latest research was and I knew that it'd be a nice, a nice question to ask you uh, anyway. One of the things, I know we don't have too long left. One of the things that I um, enjoyed when we first started meeting too, I remember you got me jumping with a pulse oximeter on, jumping, then making me hyperventilate, and then making me breathe into a spiral tiger, and then jumping to try to make me puke. And you were a huge guy in training respiratory muscles with the spiral tiger and different things like this. And now breathing exercises and respiratory training is huge. Can you go a little bit into what you found, what you find interesting in this field? Yeah. So, I mean, the, 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 the rationale behind the, the respiratory muscle training or the, the, the pulmonary muscle training was just explained, right? The idea is that unlike what was classically told, I was taught this uh, in, in my first year of, of exercise phys as well, respiratory muscles are never limiting performance. You breathe all day, they're never, you're totally fine. And one of the, the awesome uh, reasonings behind this was, well, if you do a maximum uh, so minute maximum minute ventilation test. So like how fast can I breathe in one minute? Um, you can never do that because you hyperventilate. So you really just do 15 seconds, you times it by four. 
and then you get a maximum minute, which is already dumb because if you could actually do it per minute, it probably wouldn't be as high as your 15 second max times four. I mean, this is like, if I run a hundred meters in, you know, 12 seconds, then I'm going to run my 400 meters in 48 seconds, obviously. That's not how it works. Um, but the idea was so that this minute would give you, well, what is your perform breathing performance? And if you then do your cycling endurance test and you finish your ramp and you say, I'm done, I can't go any, any harder, you can compare your max minute ventilation and say, well, but you can breathe way more. Like, look at this. You can breathe way higher. So obviously you were never limited there. Um, you know, it's kind of like a marathon runner telling, well, you could run way faster. Like, obviously speed is not your problem. You, you know, it, it doesn't, it, it makes no sense. I hope, I hope that that rationale behind that is kind of blown out of the water. The, the idea being that your respiratory muscles can limit performance. There's pretty good data on this. What is less conclusive is, well, can we do something about it specifically? So can I specifically train my, my respiratory muscles to do more work and more work efficiently? This data isn't as conclusive. As, as we would like to be. There's lots of studies that show that. There's some contradictory work. Um, I know a lot of, of pulmonary experts are like, yeah, this doesn't work. Um, my argument is the respiratory muscles, the diaphragm, your intercostal muscles, they're skeletal muscle. There is absolutely no reason, in my opinion, as to why you wouldn't be able to train them just like you would train any other muscle. It, it makes no sense. You should be able to train them. Um, and in my experience, you can train them. You can get results by doing respiratory training where people increase their performance by just doing like breathing exercises. Um, there's lots of different ways you, you, you can obviously do this. One of the reasons that um, I think there's controversy around it again is that you have this high degree of responders and non-responders. And this again goes back to the situation that if you give someone whose respiratory muscles are not limiting their performance, respiratory training to do, they're probably just not going to improve that much. Um, and that's kind of what we saw. And that's what we did when we did the, the, the set the alliance testing. We tried to generate uh, a responder, non-responder group by saying, well, if you need more, if you're oxygen limited, if you need more oxygen, maybe your extra training will be effective for you. Whereas if it looks like, well, it looks like you, you've got tons of oxygen in your muscles, we're going to assume respiratory training is less likely to be effective for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Spot on. Right on. You have Let's, anything else, Mike? No, I, I, I do, but it'll, it'll, it'll take too long for me to get to my point on it. So let's, let's, let's cut it there. Um, bro, thank you. Thank you so much for hopping on the podcast. Where can everyone find you? What are your products? What's your website? What's your handle? Give us all the information. Uh, yeah, I'm super not prepped for this. Um, so my name's Andre Feldman. And I have a YouTube channel. Um, no shit, pretty, no, YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> amateur, but um, I just answer questions that people send me about Nears. It's called uh, Nears Sports Science. Um, you'll like my little logo. I did it up in about five minutes. It's pretty dope. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, uh, so people can check me out there and ask me questions. Now we try to answer them. I have like, I don't know, fifty questions backlogged that I still have to answer. Um, but please send me, and uh, if you send a better question, I will answer yours first. That's how I do it. 
So it's not first come first serve. It's better questions get answered first. Um, so there, yeah, you can check out my YouTube channels. If, uh, for every hundred followers more I get, uh, my wife buys me dinner. So <laughs> I've gotten two dinners. So I'm, I think at like 201 followers or something like that. I don't know if they actually follow me, but at least they've clicked the button. What's, what's, um, what's your YouTube? What's your YouTube handle? It's, called near sports man handled man i'm so so i it's called near sports science near sport i'm gonna put it into my pc right now and see what comes up um oh yeah i got it here 203 subscribers oh yeah that's a fancy logo mate (laughs) mike i'll send it to you hang on okay yeah uh yeah so you can get get people on there so i get free dinners um yeah you can check that out i I try to answer some questions about stuff and some of the stuff we've talked about here is is kind of been answered on there um i go on rants um so that and then the company i work for is first of all idiac okay it's in switzerland they make this respiratory training device so please feel free Uh, respiratory training it's it's a very cool respiratory training device um i would recommend it um brooker brooker's used it before too and the last is, of course, Moxie Monitor, which I'm the co-developer of the nearest device we, we talked about that I use. Um, go, go check that out. Um, yeah, we think it's pretty cool. Definitely, we, we see potential there. Perfect. Cool. Thank you, Andre, man. Really, right. thanks for spending the time, buddy. Thank yeah, you. I, I, hope, I hope this is useful for you guys. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. And I hope, I hope we get you some, some kind of following from this, more than 203 more than yeah. 203 uh, subscribers, but maybe not. Who knows? Thank God. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> All right. Cool, Thanks, buddy. Brother. Thanks, bud. Have a All good right. one. Thanks.